0: Father Christopher. Yes. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm glad to be here. This is super great. And now you're used to being on camera because of your podcast.
1: Yes, very much used to it. I'm, In fact, I even use this same microphone. Uh, so it's a very familiar environment and, and uh, you even got the blue light in the background, which is what we've got for our Conversing <laughs> Clergy podcast. So yeah, or I should say YouTube videos. So yeah, this is very familiar to me. How long have you been doing those podcasts? It actually started, believe it or not, people think that we started because of the coronavirus shutdowns. It actually started in February. So before that. It started a month before. And we had a laptop, a little laptop on the table. Uh And we had, uh, at the beginning, we just had a Yeti microphone all like in the middle of us three, us (sighs) meaning uh, Father Ricardo and also Christopher Meyer, who was our Pastel Year Seminarian. Uh-huh. And that's that's how we started. And then we added a little bit more, got some better microphones, and then a little bit more. We said, we need to do this live thing. And uh, the, the fascinating thing also is that the very, very first time we did it, was an experiment and it was in January, I want to say. Uh-huh. And so what happened was uh, I noticed that, because uh, we were already doing these videos that were pre-recorded, but what I noticed was that, oh, you can do a live one just by pushing a button on Facebook. Yes. It was the Facebook app. Uh-huh. So I said, let's just do it. And, you know, Father Ricardo sitting at the dinner table, of uh, Christopher Myers sitting across as well, just having a conversation. I said, guys, we're going to go live. And I pushed the button And then immediately 30 people are on the live stream and then it was just complete nonsense. So that's how we started. We're just talking complete nonsense. So anyway, but yeah, we've been, we've been doing it for a while. And how long have you been with St. Bartholomew? I've been, I've been here since 2016. So it'll be five years in uh, August 2nd. So yeah, it's gone by very quickly.
0: Now, is this your first parish where you're the parish priest or were you, uh, Do you mean Uh, like the pastor? The the pastor, yeah, the pastor. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. This is actually this my second pastor assignment. So I was at Resurrection in Houston, and uh, so and I was there for five years. So I'm hitting that point where hopefully you know, I won't get transferred because I hit five years again. So I'm hoping, you know, is much that the, longer.
0: Is that the usual time if you are transferred five no, years?
1: Five years really is not the usual time. It's it's really ideally. And I've spoken, you know, to the Cardinal. He's shared his thoughts about how long an assignment should be. He said, uh-huh. ideally, it should be about 12. Okay. Um, and that's what he likes to strive for. But sometimes that's just simply not possible. So what they say is like six, six to 12 years. Um, and there was a time when they said, let's make it into a, a term. So you have a six year term and then you can have another six year term. Um, but, you know, just because of the shortage of, of vocations and priests that can serve as pastors, you know, and, and do it well, or at least not run the parish to the ground, you know, there's kind of a shortage of that. So, yes. uh, so it's like, w- w- whatever is needed is, is what happens. So in fact, my predecessor, Father Wayne Wilkerson was only here for two years which is extremely short. Wow. Yeah, and that's because another pastor had to leave his parish. And so he was shifted over to that parish, which was St. Michael's. And then uh, then I was pulled out at, after my fifth year, so. Did you grow up here in Houston? Actually, I was born in Laredo. Okay. And that was, uh, we were there for a couple of years. And then we made our way to Converse, Texas, which is basically San Antonio. Uh-huh. And we were there till 94. And then Missouri city, which is basically Houston. So Missouri city since then. And how old yeah. were you then? I was, how old was I? 14 years old, 14 when we moved to Missouri City. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me how old I, what was I when I was born. And so I was, <laughs> no, no. you know, about nine months. <laughs> as far as I can remember, it's kind of a fuzzy memory. Did you grow up Catholic? I grew up Catholic, yeah. Baptized Catholic and parents Catholic, mom and dad. Um, basically Catholic on on both sides of the of, of my family. So yeah.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So did you go to a Catholic school growing up? Did you know you were going to be a priest? No, no. When I grew up, I went to the public school with the rest of the heathens. Um, So, (laughs) you know, it was, but it was a good experience. Uh, um, You know, it probably would have been a better experience going to a Catholic school if the Catholic school was a good, you know, rich, I mean, a good Catholic school that's rich in the faith, of course. Uh Uh, But anyway, no, I I went to public school pretty much all my life, even college. because I went to Texas A&M. And, um, and I was there for about, I was studying there for about four years. And then, and you might think that I finished my time there, but I was studying engineering. So engineering is like, unless, unless you're really brilliant and or driven, it's Uh like, it's like five years to finish an engineering degree. So, and I was doing co-op working for Delta airlines. Um, so that means I spent some extra semesters working for Delta airlines to get some experience in engineering. Anyway, so then I transferred after four years. I transferred into the seminary, and that was my first experience with a Catholic education. Since Holy Trinity Seminary is University of Dallas, of yes. course, uh-huh. and then uh, and and then uh, of course St. Mary's Seminary is University of Saint Thomas, connected to that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So when when did the first thoughts of you becoming a priest creep in? Was it when that, you were older? The, since... the
1: very very first time was when I was eleven years old, and the I had never heard what might seem more common now, which is a vocations homily. And I remember this priest preaching and and it wasn't, we were out of town. We were going somewhere. I forgot where, and we had to make it to mass. We were traveling and we had to make it to mass somewhere. And so we found a spot in some town where they, they, they celebrated mass at the time that we could get there. So we show up and I hear the homily and the priest is talking about how young men or boys can be called to be a priest. And I didn't Mm -hmm. even think about priests coming from normal men who were not priests before they were priests. You know what I mean? (laughs) You kind of think they get hatched out of eggs, almost like teachers, like teachers don't have homes. They (laughs) live at the school, that kind of a thing. Uh, You know, when you're that young, that's kind of how it seems. Yes. And so I was thinking to myself, am I called to be a priest? I think I might be called. And that mm-hmm. was for about 30 minutes during the mass afterwards. And then when I received communion, I said, no, I'm not called to be a priest. <laughs> people, people get, get kind of, you know, fake by that. It's like, a, like a, you know, they, 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 they kind of turn, you know, and that twist in that story. Um, but, uh, but that was the first time I thought about it. And of course, I, I didn't rule it out. You know, it was kind of uh-huh. lingering there. So 11 years old, and then 18 years old, when I was on my way into college, I had a really, uh, I was going through some, uh, tribulation because I really, really wanted to be one of two things, either a foot NFL football player or an aerospace engineer. Those are the two things, you know? Okay. Um, you know, and, and I wanted to go and become an astronaut. So I wanted to go to space. So I really set some realistic goals for myself, (laughs) totally achievable. Uh, and, and so I, I, those are the two things I wanted to do. Now, really, NFL was a big one for me, and um, and so I I was playing offensive guard or center. And those who may not know what football, you know, may not know much about football. Basically, I was the guy that had to hit somebody else repetitively in order to keep that person <laughs> from tackling the guy with the ball. So yes. that's it. You know, kind of the blue collar worker of of football, and you did you this know, through high school. I did this all throughout high school. I played for I played for about six years, um, so junior high all the way through high school, and um, and I was I was semi good at it. I look at I look back at it now, and it's like, yeah, I really didn't have a chance to be in the NFL, you know. But at that <laughs> age, you know, you, you're you know, especially if if you're playing pretty pretty well, um, you think I, I was thinking, yeah, I, I think I have a
0: shot. Anyway. But, but so, A&M didn't come knocking on your door. A&M no.
1: did not, come, and knock, not <laughs> come knocking at my door. I was, you know, about uh, four inches too short and... Uh, probably seventy five pounds too light. Um, that all makes a difference. It turns out you got to have that length of arms and yes. all of that stuff, and you also have to be really good.
0: <laughs> so uh,
1: apparently that's also important. Just a little thing called talent. Just right? a yeah. little thing called talent, and uh, you know, and of course, um, you know. But what what actually happened? And I, I think that if I didn't experience this thing, my last year uh, of playing football, my my varsity year. If I didn't experience this one thing, I don't think I I would have been open to the priesthood, and that is I got injured um, uh, in the uh, fifth game into the season, so mid-season, uh, where my anterior cruciate ligament, the ACL, the a ligament in the knee, uh-huh. was completely severed um, in the middle of a game because Ouch. of because I was hit uh, on the shoulder by um, by another player, the the of course the opposing team. Uh, He hit me on the shoulder, and it wasn't a hard hit, but it was just right to get my knee to twist, and that was it. Yeah, that was it for the season. And I remember being very, feeling very discouraged. And I remember thinking, um, you know, at the time that this is just from this is just a hump for me to get over. Like immediately, I was thinking, let's get the surgery. I'm going to train hard, Uh you know. And in fact, I did train very hard to rehabilitate. Got, we, I did get the surgery. Got a great surgeon. He was actually the surgeon for uh, the Houston Oilers at the time, um, and also the Houston Rockets. I think he still is. Cool. Um, so that's just my parents. I, my mother and my aunt. They just worked hard to get that. So anyway, uh-huh. I, the surgery and then recovery and rehabilitation, and it was supposed to take six months. I got it done in four months. Wow. And I was ready to go. I actually I didn't I didn't mention this, but I I'd spent I didn't spend four years at A and M. It was two years at A and M Kingsville. And then two years at A and M College Station. Okay. So, um, and so I, I worked really hard to get better. And then at A and M Kingsville, which is where I was gonna, I was planning on playing football at because one of the coaches was recruiting me to go there. Okay. And uh, and I was offered a position. Oh. And that position was to be on the kickoff team. Okay. And I said, I don't want to <laughs> just be on the kickoff team. You know. Anyway, but there it was more to that it wasn't just i didn't want to be on the kickoff team it was also a whole sort of journey i was on after the injury where i was really clinging to the lord really um asking him to help and i was also beginning to pray with greater earnestness and most importantly i began to to pray to know his his holy will for me and that in earnest i was already doing that but it uh-huh. was kind of more like I want to do your holy will, and your will is for me to play the NFL. And so <laughs> or know, become an astronaut. or become an astronaut. one of those two. That's your will. <laughs> Lord, help me know your will. And also this is your will. You know, it was kind of like that kind of a thing going on. Um but i but I started to really really seriously listen. And I think going through that tribulation helped a lot. Um, the Lord allowing me to experience that that injury, so that was the context within which I started to think about the priesthood, and that's when I, I think another part of it was when my mother, around that time, when I was 18, on my way into college, asked me, "Have you ever thought about becoming a priest?" And I said, "I really haven't, seriously, but I will now," and that uh-huh. was a turning point. So after that. Then there was, uh, you know, a journey during, the, during the, the four years where I was involved in the, the Catholic uh, campus ministries, and um, I always had a spiritual director helping me out. So Father John, or Father Roger Smith, uh, who was the pastor at the time at Saint Gertrude's in uh, Kingsville, and I'm, I'm 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 not sure how he's doing these days. It's been a while since I've connected with him, but anyway and uh, and also Father Peter Koscol I hope I'm saying his last name right he's a he's originally from Poland was the campus minister at the time at AM Kingsville and then made my way to AM and uh found another spiritual director Father David Konderla, who's now the bishop in Tulsa nice um so he's he was extremely extremely helpful so it was just a wonderful journey with spiritual directors and and with uh, getting involved in, in campus ministry uh, that was all part of that environment that led me to say yes to the lord do you have any you know, brothers or sisters i have one brother one oh. brother michael and he is uh 40 no no he's not 40 what is he i i can't even keep track of my own age is he's he older 30s, or younger he's younger so he's 36 he's 36 and he's married with children and has uh twin boys and they're 10 years old and just a, a, a huge handful and um you know the, a quick funny story is that my brother was super Rambunctious, super rambunctious when he was younger, and uh-huh. I, I I remember hearing that my mother said to him one time that when he gets older and has children, he's going to have two just like him, and that's exactly what happened <laughs> at the same time. So it's Twins, just huh? so funny, yeah, twin boys. Oh wow, yeah, yeah, wow. So,
0: so you, so the reason I ask about your family is so did you, when your mom asked you about. You know, you becoming a priest or not. Did your was your brother already married at that point? Did he have
1: Oh no no. None? By then, uh, let's see, he would have been I was eighteen years old, so he Oh, would okay, have been, so it was still early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early on. He would have been uh twelve, twelve years old at the time. But he did uh, consider the priesthood for a little bit as well. And so there was a time when he when he was considering it.
0: Did you have difficulty in discerning the priesthood? <laughs> you know, there I would say I would say uh
1: yes. Um in a couple of couple of areas, I think one is just not having clarity immediately because apparently the Lord doesn't have the habit of revealing all things at once, <laughs> you know, at the beginning. So, uh, so there was that, and and then the other. Part, so, so and and within that difficulty, it was learning how to be patient with Him and uh, and and to be open to what He to the way that He wants to reveal His will. The other part was fear, you know, just just fear, being afraid of taking the next step. Um, and and for me, the other, the other obstacle was, was fear of not having a family, right? Not being married and having children. So that for me was a real desire. I mean, I mean, again, I didn't, I didn't really start thinking about it seriously until I was 18 years old. So that Uh means that during all that time. Ah, uh, when uh, when a man begins to think about his future and family, and he's and he's dating and all of that, mm-hmm. I was that was the the course that I was that was going on. Um, did you have any so, serious
0: girlfriends?
1: I did have a couple. Yeah, I had a couple of, um I would say one in one in high school and then one in college. So, and the and the 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 woman I was dating in college, we broke up um, in a way that very few women experience, and that is because their boyfriend. Wants to be a priest, you know. So it was in, on good terms, and uh-huh. it was it wasn't because we had conflicts or just we're moving apart. Wow. It's like no, we're gonna break up because I'm discerning the priesthood. Oh, you know, wow. um, did, did, was so it hard for her? It was hard. It was hard for her. Yeah, because we had a good we had a good relationship. We had a great relationship, and so it was like you know, it's not because of any, I mean, you know, if, if if a relationship turns sour, you're kind of happy about the breakup. Uh Right. And, and, or it's, or there's a, there's something easy about it, I should say. Um, but if it's for good terms, it's, uh, there's a, how did that conversation go? Well, the good thing is that it took place over time. Okay. So I was already discerning, um, but I wasn't serious yet. So she knew that that might be something that's on the horizon. Um, but then when I made the decision and I said, yeah, we need to, Go ahead and uh, end this relationship. Otherwise, I'm kind of wasting your time, and I need to be free to discern even more deeply this vocation. Yeah.
0: Oh wow, that must so, have been a tough, tough conversation. To yeah, finally, it was. just say, okay, this is it.
1: Yeah, it was. But it, at the same time, she she was a woman of faith, uh-huh. and so she was also happy. Um, you know about my about my decision too.
0: Yeah. So yeah. on one end, she's happy that you're finding your, you know, yeah, your path. Your your vocation, but at the, at the same time, just like, I'm losing my boyfriend. Yeah.
1: That's exactly <laughs> what it was like. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was tough. It was, it was tough, but, uh, and, but the, and I, again, I think this is part of Providence. I was already, um, this was, this was at A&M Kingsville. So I was already discerning going to A&M you know, okay. because I wanted to study, because at A&M Kingsville, there was only mechanical engineering. A&M was aerospace, so mm-hmm. I hadn't given up the dream of working for NASA and perhaps moving towards the astronaut <laughs> program. So, you know, um, but anyway, so at the time I was discerning, going to A&M in uh-huh. College Station. And so that kind of helped too with the break um, to have that geographical okay. uh, distance. So that helped, that no. helped a lot. Did yeah. she say
0: something like, um, cause when Father David Michael was in, he had a similar conversation with, mm. with his girlfriend at the time. And I asked him this and I was right on the money when I asked him, did she say, can't you like just become a, a, a permanent deacon Oh, instead? that's funny. Did she, yeah, did she funny. say that
1: to you? Like like it's deacon, light, like priest light, right? <laughs> um, I, I don't remember her ever saying that. I don't remember her ever saying that. I, a, a quick uh, funny story though, I was at, uh, I was in the Air Force for a while, uh, my last year, my, my last two years of seminary. And I was discerning being an Air Force chaplain, which is a priest that serves yes. uh, the Air Force, right? It's the yes. archdiocese of the military services. Anyway, so when I went into the uh, into the program, part of what they would do, this was just a program to get to know the the vocation of being a Catholic priest in the Air Force. So they commission you, and then you go through orientation, you go through kind of a training. Uh-huh. And so I remember having a conversation with other um, military chaplain candidates just like me who were not catholic okay and so there were episcopalians and baptists there was there was one uh, muslim uh, imam uh-huh. and so we're all we're all talking about this and about the requirements that a priest can't be married etc and so one of them asked me they asked me well you know one thing you can do is just leave the catholic church become Episcopalian, become an Episcopalian (laughs) priest, and then go back to the Catholic church and, you know, get married as an Episcopalian priest and then go back to the Catholic church. And then, you know, they can make that exception for you, which I don't know if that's ever been done successfully. Um, But I told them, you know, we kind of believe what the Catholic Church teaches, so uh-huh. you know, and it's not the same as what the Episcopalian Church teaches. So try anyway. to
0: try skirt the, the rules and get. Yeah, a, it's really it was working really working canon law a little bit, and <laughs> it was really interesting. I, and at first, I kind of laughed, but the person was serious, <laughs> so I was like, okay. But anyway, that's one thing we're trying to get on the show. We're trying to get a former Episcopalian who's become a Catholic priest. Oh so hopefully yeah, hopefully we can get one. Well, you should be able to get. Things.
1: I would recommend Father Chuck Huff. Um, so in fact, he's been on our, in our studio, I, uh, at, uh, with the conversing clergy, uh, conversations. In fact, we're going to have him on even
0: more. So he's definitely open to it. Oh, okay. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I'll get his details after yeah, that. Yeah. Father Chuck. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So when you broke up with a girlfriend and you finally decide, okay, I'm 100% in, you still had difficulty though, with the discernment process. Of, I, of course.
1: Did. I did. I did. When I went to, uh, when I went to A&M, um, I have found that one thing I discovered was I wasn't yet ready to make that next step. I, I was; it was still a hangup for me, mm-hmm. and um, and also another part of what made it difficult was that apparently women go to a and as well. And they also go to the, to the <laughs> campus ministry, you know. Uh, so I met a lot of great women. Um, and the question was coming back up again. I would like to date this person. And I became friends with a lot of great women. And there was attraction there and pull as, as, there, as there should be in, in yes. a great environment like that. Um, you know, people of, of the faith that that you know, women mm-hmm. that are interested in men that that practice the faith. Yes. Uh, so it was great for that. In fact, I know I have a lot of friends uh, who who got to know each other and not and are now very happily married and faithful Catholics. Right. And so yes. I'm just I'm like, am I really serious about this? And um, so yeah, it took a couple of years. Father David Kondala, again, he helped me out a lot. And then just the natural progression of being involved in ministries. So I was teaching Bible study. I was helping out with the pro-life ministry. Uh, I did a little bit of, of ministry visiting the, the juvenile detention center nearby. And so, yeah, and, and then having some very powerful and important pivots, pivot moment, pivotal moments in my prayer life. Uh, where the Lord was asking me, you know, will you, will you do this? And
0: this is all during college. This is all during college. So your college was still, it was being paid for by your parents. Yes. Because you were not yet in the seminary. Right, exactly. So they were paying for my discernment. Yes. So it worked out well. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. Did your family have, your parents have any difficulty with you? Um, Choosing the priesthood, I know you said your mom. Yeah, she's no. She... They
1: were very supportive all along. My mother and my father. Um, my you know mother was definitely saying prayers for me, uh-huh. and uh, I remember with my dad, he was always very supportive. And th- I think the one thing that was hard for them, of course, was the separation. That the separation felt different than for me just going to college, and the, the separation mm. is is you know for one thing was going into the seminary and going in and not being able to visit as much as i could yes you know there is a kind of a, a more of a of a a discipline of i don't want to say isolation but i would say uh kind of a cloistered sort of environment going into the seminary so that so that a man can be free to discern and to yes. learn with greater intensity So I think that was kind of tough, and also I would say that uh, with my dad, he he knew he knew the priests at the parish at St. Lawrence. Uh, He was a sacristan and volunteered in so many ways. He got to know the priests behind the scenes. He would talk to them in the sacristy, and so his concern was that I would suffer a lot, you know, because he he, because the priesthood is not the easiest life. Um, Yes, you know, um, and, and in fact, I remember Father John Wire, God rest his soul. He, he uh, turned to me one day at, when I saw him at the parish at St. Lawrence. He was the pastor at the time. And he turned to me and said, are you sure you want to be a priest? It's a very hard life, you know? Uh-huh. And I think he was going through a tough time, um, but, you know, and he wasn't discouraging me. I think he was wanting me to take it seriously. Yes. So anyway, so my dad was seeing that. And I think for my mom, I think it's just, you know, attachment, you know, moms are attached to their children. So, yeah. But again, they were both very supportive.
0: Do you think it would have been more difficult on them if you were an only child?
1: You know, I don't know. I haven't even considered that. Um, I would, I mean, I would not be surprised if we were to travel to an alternate universe where I was the the only child and that being something very, very difficult for them. You know, uh, cause, I, cause I remember when my brother had, uh, had his twin boys and my parents somehow they de-aged by 20 years when they (laughs) saw the grandbabies. So I mean, I could just see the happiness and the energy and they were just so so overwhelmed with joy because you're the you're so, the oldest you know, son. I'm the oldest, son, and it's right. kind of the
0: responsibility of the oldest son to to pass on the family name, right? Exactly. But you've got a brother now, yeah. And exactly. It, that kind of moved on to him, and now that he's got two boys, yeah, and he's got boys, so that's gonna be
1: it, you know. Yes. Um, so there's
0: uh, no pressure on. There was no, no pressure on no you. No pressure.
1: No pressure. So I, I I didn't have the pressure to leave the Catholic Church and become Episcopalian, and then come back to the Catholic Church after being Episcopalian, <laughs> <laughs> an Episcopalian priest. No pressure whatsoever you and in your, that your, regard. your
0: wife come back to the, the Catholic yeah, Church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me and my wife would have to
1: become Episcopalian, then Catholic. And so, yeah. Um, you know, an, an interesting thing too is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a really interesting thing is that I have a, a, a family crest because we have, on my dad's side, we're British. Uh-huh. And so we have a family crest that is passed down to the elder. And so my dad, being the elder, received this this crest. It's just like a wooden... Sort of shaped like that, and it's got different symbols yes and and so I have it, and so I'm thinking, well, who am I going to pass this on to? You know, yes, it, it wouldn't be my first parochial vicar, obviously you know that would <laughs> that wouldn't count, so it would obviously go to uh, one of my brother's sons, well, yes. they're twins, so but I asked him which one came, came out of the womb first. Yes. You know? <laughs> so it's kind of like a um, oh now now my mind is slipping. Is it Jacob and Esau, uh, the twins that were born, and one was grabbing the foot of the other? <laughs> you know. So which one was grabbing the foot of the other? That's that's how we'll go about about that. But anyway,
0: that's hilarious. And yeah. you know, for some reason, I had this this. Um, Fake advertisement in my mind for for priests. Mm. It's like, are you a priest? Do you want to get married? Well, join the Episcopalian Church, oh, and then yeah. you and your wife can. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, there, you got you got to give that a really cool name too, right? You know, like the like the the Emmaus journey of going <laughs> off on a in a different direction and then allowing the Lord to turn you back to Jerusalem.
0: There may be a whole so, a whole line of law. That you could study, like a canon law expert. You know, how you have am, mm-hmm. ambulance chasers, lawyers, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You could have those types of lawyers I just like trying that. to prey on priests who are discerning, you or know, thinking of discerning out, or, 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 or excuse me, you know, seminarians. I, I think
1: I think we have really, I think we've really <laughs> have a breakthrough here in this conversation. Um So we're going to cut that part out, right? This is our million dollar idea, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. You and I are going to go into business. I'm going to go to canon. I'm going to go get my doctorate in canon law first, yeah, right, we can and come then, back and. Then <laughs> then we're going to make it happen. I'll work on the advertising side and then yeah. we can <laughs> Yeah, and that'll that'll solve the vocations crisis right then and there, you know. We we'll have plenty of men that could be that can be priests and then be pastors. So, yeah.
0: So, you said that you didn't finish um, your fifth year of college. So was it at right. that fourth year you decided, okay, I'm going to become a priest?
1: Yeah. Well, t- technically, I had I had two years because of the um, the co-op that I was doing, okay. so that expanded it out to six years. Okay. So you know, and now that I think about it, I might have been doing that just to lengthen the amount of time that I needed to discern. Um, you yeah. know, I'm just I'm I'm psychoanalyzing myself. Yeah. You know? um, but I was yeah I had two years left. Not about two years left. You know. Otherwise, uh, if I only had one year left. I remember even uh, Father David Condorla saying to me, you know, if, if it was only one year left, then I would say, go ahead and finish out the degree and then go into the seminary from there just to have that completed, have a bachelor's degree completed. And then you can bring that with you into the seminary and it it, uh, it counts for certain requirements. And then it also, you can go into what's called a pre-theology program uh-huh. where you're not, uh, you're not an undergraduate, you're taking master's level courses in theology and philosophy. And then you get your master's. So yeah, in, was, in
0: theology, was there a breaking point, like one particular point when you said, "Okay, this is mm-hmm. this is the point where I really decided to become a priest"?
1: Yeah, uh, it was a, a very powerful, prayerful moment. It was really moments of prayer is where these these uh, decisions, um, where the Lord was leading me to make the, make important decisions. So it was. I can't remember the exact date. It was definitely the spring of uh, 2000 or 19, uh, 2000, the spring of 2000, 2001. I can't remember now, it's been so long. I think it's 2001. And I remember the just doing my daily prayer and I felt Jesus next to me at night as I was laying down to go to sleep. And he said, I have a very beautiful or precious gift that I want to give you. Yeah and kind of fell asleep with that. Uh-huh. And then when I woke up in the morning, all the fear, all the hesitancy to do what I knew was God's will, which was to go into the seminary, had just completely dissolved. It was just the most powerful freeing moment. And so that's when I made the, the appointment uh, with Father David. He actually, it was very good. He was very good in making himself available that very day uh, uh-huh. to, to meet with me. And yeah, and that's when I told him, and of course, I wanted to check in with him as well, but I told him, you know, this is what I've experienced. And, uh, and we have already been talking for two years. And I said, I think I'm ready to go into the seminary. And in that, in that huge, important moment, for me, it was very important. It was pivotal, right? Uh Life-changing. Yes. And Father David says, okay, all right, well, give Father Clint a call. And that was it. And that was it.
0: <laughs> there wasn't like any more discussion for him. <laughs> I think for him it was like it's about time. He, or, or he probably saw it in your eyes too. Yeah, yeah, I think that so. I, I, he probably said, "I know this look. Yeah, this is it." Yeah,
1: because he has he had helped uh, quite a few men before that. Uh-huh. I mean, being a being a priest at a college campus ministry. Yeah, I'm sure he's had experience with that.
0: So, how long was this after you had broken up with a girlfriend?
1: This was this would have been a couple of years.
0: Okay, so mm-hmm. no contact anymore with her. Mm-mm.
1: No, not really, not really. Well, I think we might have exchanged emails and um, just, you know, maybe come come in contact in in different environments where there might have been a wedding or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, but that there was nothing more. Yeah.
0: Do you keep in touch with her still?
1: Not really. Not really. It's, no Facebook it's stalking or anything like no, that? No, no Facebook. I actually closed my personal Facebook account. Really? Yeah, because I <laughs> it was getting out of hand. My All 1,700 of my closest friends were connected to me. <laughs> and it was kind of scary because, uh, again, this is a personal account. I have a fan page. Uh-huh. Uh, which is totally malfunctioning right now. But anyway, uh, but the personal account, yeah, and and some of the some of the folks were posting some inappropriate stuff, and it was getting kind of uh-huh. hairy. So anyway, <laughs> so I closed it down. But no, there's, but I was connected to her on Facebook. Uh-huh. Uh, we you know we were keeping in touch. But no, it's it's been it's been years since we've
0: spoken. so there. So at that point, when you decided you were all in, there was no call to her saying, "Okay, sorry, yeah, this is it."
1: You know, there might have been. I just don't remember. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember. She was at my ordination though. Oh, wow. Yeah. She was at my ordination with, uh, with her boyfriend. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Her boyfriend, her husband, I just, <laughs> all these details, man. Uh, I think because at the time her, it, it was the man who was her boyfriend would have been either her husband or they would have still been dating, but yeah, they came to the ordination.
0: Now you talked about possibly becoming a military chaplain. Yeah. Now this is very close to me because I grew up, with my dad in the military. So I had a lot of military chaplains, mm-hmm. you know, with um, the CCE classes and all of that. And you see them all, oh, you go to, you go to oh, mass wow. and there, yeah. So what, why didn't that work out? What happened there?
1: Well, what, what happened there was, um, it was really a discernment to see, is this what God wants me to do? Because I have a great love for the military. I believe in the mission of the military. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in the goodness of the United States, the American experiment. Uh-huh. I really believe that it has its roots in Judeo-Christian uh, principles, and and I think it's worth defending. And um, and so I just I thought about that. Am I would I am I being called to serve in that way? So I, I went through the whole what's called the chaplain candidacy program. Uh-huh. So like I said, there was basic training where you get yelled at for five weeks. <laughs> and then there was the two, two, and then two weeks of orientation where they tell you about the chaplain, the, what it is to be a military chaplain. Uh-huh. And there were some things that were very attractive about the life, um, but there were some things also that, that led me to doubt if this is really what he wants me to do. So uh, one of those was, the, was when they showed me, uh, they, they showed all of us photos of what it looks like going into a field hospital when there is combat. Oh yes. And they showed me the the images and I got, I got super nauseous. I got super nauseous. Now I've seen gory movies. I didn't get sick. Yes. But when it's real. Yes. I just don't think I I could handle it. You know, walking seeing, into that situation. Walking yeah. into situation. I mean, they were showing people, you know, these soldiers, poor soldiers that were just torn to pieces. And I just, it was so, it was so
0: hard for me to look at. Kind um, of like that, 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 scene in saving private ryan where the guy's they was dying stuff like and, and the guy is you know giving him his you know he was yeah. confessing trying and, to it,
1: yeah and, and trying to put himself together yeah. and all that stuff oh. and, and actually some of the stuff i i saw in those photos was worse than saving private ryan wow. so yeah so it was just really um i felt very nauseous and so that was one of the doubts that i had it's uh-huh. kind of like when I wanted when I was younger, younger, um, before thinking about engineering, I wanted to be a doctor. Uh-huh. And then I took biology and I found out that I really hated these long Latin words. <laughs> and uh, that was pretty much it actually. That's what got me out, which is ironic because I'm a big supporter of Latin in our liturgies. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, but, uh, but that was one thing. And then it was, uh, I, I did get the chance after I was ordained to serve a little bit more. And so celebrating mass for the trainees at Lackland Air Force Base. Uh-huh. And it was um, kind of a kind of a gut thing um, that no, this isn't where the Lord is leading me. So yeah,
0: during that th- those weeks, you said that the, you you were yelled at a lot. So oh, it was yeah. you and a whole bunch of other chaplain candidates, right?
1: Yeah, they they put us together with other chaplain candidates uh, of different faith denominations uh-huh. and um, lawyers. Lawyers. And, and doctors. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what they do is they, they yes. go ahead and, and they go ahead and commission us depending on how much experience we have. Yes. Uh, so there was a doctor that had, you know, 20 years experience as a doctor. Uh-huh. And so they put, they incentivize if you, if they, if they're, they're trying to recruit you. So the incentive is you come in as he, he came in as a, as a Lieutenant Colonel, uh, which is an O5, mm. I think in the ranks of, if, um, if people are familiar with that language. Yes there's like standard ranks. And so you also get paid, paid a certain, yeah. yes, amount. Exactly. So anyway, so, uh, of course I, I only had, I wasn't even a priest yet. Uh-huh. Um, so they gave me the two butter bars. So I was second <laughs> Lieutenant lowest on the, on the, on yes. the uh, pole. But anyway, so, yeah, so we were all grouped together and, um, It was, I mean, it really was a good experience. So they
0: weren't that easy on you? I mean, thinking that, you know.
1: They were definitely easier on us than what they would do with. Regular uh, recruits. Yeah, (laughs) enlisted trainees. Because I, I, again, when I helped them out, they were, and it was for eight, they do it for eight weeks. Uh Um, And also easier than what they would do with office, other um, actual combat officers, uh-huh. uh, the one who, who would be in, in training. I figured um, if it was
0: just ch- uh, chaplain candidates are like, yeah. okay, we, we can't do the cursing as much. Yeah. We- <laughs> oh yeah. No, I don't
1: remember there ever being any cursing. I don't remember their cursing. Um. So yeah. So, so you
0: got the, you got the boot camp light. It was That's definitely light. It was definitely light.
1: Cause I remember they, I mean, they yelled at us for two weeks straight. I mean, it was. Like what kind I'll of stuff never, did they say to you? Oh, well there's one that I, that I remember that I actually really loved and it was, I was uh, marching in formation and I was they the, my my squad or actually they're called a flight in the air force uh-huh. but it's like a squad mm-hmm. and I and I uh was leading the march uh down the sidewalk outside the complex to get into the dormitory that we had and I decided to maybe crack a couple of jokes while doing that and there was there was no there was no drill sergeant around okay but there was one watching me doing that uh-oh and so he yelled out and commanded me to guide the squadron over to him. And uh-huh. he was in front of another another flight that had like 20, 20 officers, right, that are in training. Okay. And he chews me out. And he says, what, are you, what were you thinking? And I'm just standing there at attention in silence. <laughs> what are you thinking? Smoking and joking in formation. Uh-huh. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, I like that, smoking and joking. <laughs> That's like the best <laughs> phrase ever. and uh, And I don't remember the rest of the conversation, and, and, you know, he chewed me out some more and then he dismissed us. Um, but that's the one thing that stuck with me. And so I actually have uh, a group of priests that I invite, um, and we go out somewhere you know, we'll go to a restaurant or something and mm-hmm. have a few drinks or maybe sit outside and smoke a few cigars and crack jokes. And so I call it smokes and jokes, you know, to this day. So smoke I learned that from, it. I learned that from the Air Force. That's that's the one thing I learned.
0: <laughs> At that point, you're done with uh, with that, you know, considering doing that. And then you just mm. decide to go into continue like, with the parish work. Okay.
1: Yeah, cuz cuz the way it works out is uh you're assigned to a parish yes. and then something gets worked out in the process where um where you where I would uh work with whatever commanding officer I would be assigned to who helps okay. with assignments and then they would work with the bishop uh-huh. you know, with Cardinal DiNardo. And then uh, and then from there, the personnel board for the archdiocese would look into that and they would say, okay, this is how we can work out the assignment. So we know that you're going to be going, it looks like a, a good time is, you know, this date, such and such date to go ahead and go in for active duty. Yeah? Okay. Um, especially because they know once you get orders from the federal government, then, you know, those are orders and, you know, you really, there's not a whole lot of flexibility after yes. that.
0: So anyway, that that's how they would arrange it is is in that way. Did a lot of guys drop out with you because of those photos and those types of things? With uh, oh,
1: um, you know, I actually don't know. I don't know. I I didn't really follow up with a, a whole lot of the a whole lot of the guys. I know that most of them be, got ordained priests. I think one of them didn't, uh-huh. uh, but but yeah, they continued as military chaplains. The priests that I know, I don't know about the
0: rest that were different denominations. Okay, so you you go into the seminary, and you said that you you got like a master's level program, right? And yeah. this was in Dallas.
1: Well, no, in Dal- actually in Dallas, uh, you, you you can do two th- two, one of two things, either... You come in with a bachelor's degree already from your previous life. Yes. You come in, you come in with it, in which case they put you through what they call pre-theology, and you take a, the, the philosophy classes that are necessary, as well as a few theology classes. The ones
0: that you would have taken if you had-
1: Yes, exactly. Yes. But if you come in as an undergraduate, then you need to complete the entire degree and what they would do, a bachelor's degree there at University of Dallas. And that for seminarians would be philosophy and letters. And so, if you come in with nothing like you just came in straight out of high school, yes. it's like the full program for 4 years. Yes. If you come in with having taken some other classes at at a, at unit at the university, whatever university you were at, then you look at those classes and then look at which counts towards that degree and which don't. And, and that's then, what you that happened to you. And that's what happened to me. Okay. So, yeah, a, a quick interesting thing was that when I came when I came in um, there, are, of course, math is part of the degree program for philosophy and letters. It's a standard university degree. Yes. And they were asking me to take more math. I had three <laughs> semesters of calculus, differential equations, numerical methods, and of course, using the math all throughout my entire education. Yes. And they wanted me to take one more semester of math. And it was it uh, not?
0: Was it lower math, or oh, yeah. was it? well, it was like it was
1: like mathematics? Uh, I guess the philosophy of mathematics or something. Uh-huh. But the provost, uh, I went to her and she said, "No, no, you don't need you don't need more math."
0: So she just <laughs> kind of wrote it off. So anyway, so how many years were you there in Dallas? I was there for two years. Okay, yeah. So you were able years. to to wrap that up. in yeah. two years. And yeah. what was your life like there in Dallas? You were with some of. Some of the other guys who've had bachelor's degrees, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it was a mix of Mainly. guys who had bachelor's degrees already. We had some that actually worked as engineers, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's something about I don't know if it's a, if it's a, a trend or something, but there are a lot of guys who are engineers or studying engineering who end up going into the seminary, which is really fascinating. But anyway, so yeah, we had it was a mix of guys that finished their bachelors, maybe had some work experience, some had years of work experience. You know, the older guys that were going in. And then you had guys uh, that were coming in straight out of high school. So it was a really interesting mix and and also an interesting mix culturally too. Uh, So just folks that are coming in from Vietnam or the Philippines or, um, you know, we had some from Latin American countries and uh, some folks from Mexico, Honduras. We have uh, some Colombians. So, yeah.
0: Some of the seminarians are, well, deacons and priests that we've spoken to. A term that has come up is the term chalice chippers. Oh, yes. Chalice chippers. (laughs) Or cassock chasers.
1: Cassock chasers. uh, uh, We also had chasable chasers is also very good. chasers
0: is another one. Okay. Patent
1: prowlers is another one. (laughs) (laughs) So we had those, yeah, different terms. Did you run into any? Uh, You know, actually I did. I did. What was that like? Uh, it, I was surprised by how aggressive, uh, the, the, some of the women would be. And, and Really? Yeah. Um, you know, it was really interesting. Um, you know, some would invite me out to, to, to go on a date or they would, uh, you know, sit right next to me and really strike up a conversation, but it was very obvious, you know, what, what they were trying to do. And, um, yeah, but it was, that was real. That was a real thing. I was so surprised.
0: This was a, like a real malicious type trying to... To get a seminarian to lead the seminary, absolutely, wow.
1: and and to get into relationship with them, absolutely. So yeah. it wasn't
0: it wasn't one of those like somebody that worked with you at the campus ministry that mm-hmm. you just gotten close to. No, it wasn't anything like that. It was yeah,
1: no. Some of it was was yeah, it was quite deliberate. How know? do you how do you deal with that? Um, well, I think well, I think first and foremost is to, to continue to be a man of prayer. Uh-huh. So continue to have that friendship with Jesus um, because that's. I mean, basically giving up marriage is, it's not just giving up marriage. It's also embracing something else. It's embracing a, a deep, special friendship with Jesus. And through that, be a man of service for his church, right? That's, mm-hmm. so that's always been the essence of it. Yes. Uh, thankfully, I had training being at A&M, you know, <laughs> so A&M Kingsville. So breaking up with a girlfriend and being yes. at A&M and, uh, you know, really saying no to, to, Women who did ask me out when I was at AM. So uh-huh. I had already had that experience. So I, I kind of knew how to how to deal with that both emotionally and interiorly, but also okay. how to be uh, how to be smart in terms of boundaries. So um, so yeah, that's that's how I navigated it. And and of course I would try to be very, very aware of my own emotions. What what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Mm-hmm. Because if, you know, especially if if the woman is uh, particularly attractive and you develop a relationship with her, uh-huh. it can it can you know things can kind of get out of hand in terms of the discernment, and all of a sudden you're in this this friendship, and 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 it's really not all of a sudden. That's something else. A good formation director told me said you don't you don't really accidentally. Fall in love, you know. You you make a decision at yes. some point. You know, you are making a decision to spend time with that person. You're making a decision to hang out with them. Yes. Um. You're making a decision to say yes when they ask you out to go for a dinner. You know. Uh-huh. So yeah. So I had to. I had to be very careful about
0: that and keep boundaries. Yeah. So finally, you're done with your two years. Then you come here to Houston.
1: Yes. After two years, uh, going into Houston. Okay. Yeah. And now mm-hmm. this,
0: this experience was a lot different because you're a little more secluded. You're not right. on a co- college campus.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. So you're, you're not amongst, you know, other students. So it is uh, definitely more of, um, uh, and it, it's very, very much, uh, insulated, uh, even though you, there's still some women that come to the classes, uh, for, for some of the master's level theology degrees. So, and, um, yeah, and, and of course we always kind of joke around. It's like, oh, that person's a you know patent prowler, etc. Uh, <laughs> but the good news is that over there, <clears throat> excuse me, over at uh, St. Mary's Seminary, there is there are some pretty strict rules in, in terms of where women can be. And, okay. and, and basically they were only allowed at the academic building, the Knoll Building. I think the only exception was, and I don't know how it is now, but they allowed deacon students to come on campus to go to what is called the canteen, where they can get coffee you know, between classes and snacks, et cetera. But all the, but the, but the women who were with the Deacon students were all their wives, you know? So totally (laughs) safe, nothing wrong with that. Um, But anyway, yeah. Yeah. So
0: you're here in Houston for how many more years?
1: Let's see. uh, I was in Houston. I was at St. Mary's for five years. And
0: all of this is just more intense, right?
1: Uh, Definitely. Because you're getting closer. You're getting closer to the wedding day, you know? Yes. Um, you're, you''re you're in the Super Bowl, so to speak. And so yeah, so and it gets more intense as, as uh, time moves on. And in fact at, at Holy Trinity, I remember the language, a lot of the language was discerning whether or not you should be a priest. Mm-hmm. And then like the first two years, at least when I was there, I don't know if things have changed, but when I was there, the first two years of theology, at St. Mary's Seminary was about discerning whether or not you want to be a priest. Okay. But then after that, they said once you start hitting the summer program, it's called clinical pastoral education when you go to a hospital and you're a chaplain and then yes. you go into pastoral year. They basically said, you know, if you are not certain that that you should be a priest, then, you know, you should really you you really need to to leave and and move on to some other things or take some time out. Um, so that's I remember that being, being something that was said by the formation directors, the priests that were there.
0: Was it easier with your, were you closer, more access to your parents and your family yeah, after actu- moving back to Houston?
1: Yeah, actually I was, I was cause I, you know, being, not being too far away. So I was yes. able it, on a Saturday, for example, our Saturdays were open. Uh-huh. Uh, so we could, we could uh, go visit family. And, um, I remember being able to make it to, to spend time with my brother cause he would he had his birthday party on Saturday and what, and what he did for his birthday party is he would have a, you go out and um, have a paintball tournament. So I would go over there and, and play paintball and come back all bruised up. So I just, I just <laughs> had that as a, as a memory. Um, and now we've always, we were always able, even at Holy Trinity Seminary to spend Christmas with family. Um, and also there would be a certain period of time outside of our summer assignments, maybe a couple of weeks there where we could just stay with our family. So there was that too.
0: Did you have a lot of um other seminarians drop off, you know, discern out? Oh yeah. My class, uh, I don't know if our
1: our class might have been the biggest in terms of how many how many of us entered into the semin entered into becoming seminarians for the Archdiocese of Galveston Houston. There were 18 of us. Okay. 18, yeah. Um and four of us got ordained.
0: Wow. Yeah yeah that's a pretty low percentage
1: yeah it's a pretty low percentage yeah I, I'm not sure why there was this big bumper crop but I, that's just the way it worked out.
0: Was it tough and seeing so, those
1: guys leave um some of them it was kind of tough some of them uh, I have a, a a good friend of mine one of my best friends that was that was one of them and and it was tough to see him leave um but the good news is he's, he's happily married and uh-huh. you know we, we get to to hang out and 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 there's a connection there being a with him being a former seminarian and he continues to be faithful so yeah but it was tough. Yeah, for some of them.
0: One thing that a lot of the the priests and deacons who've come in on the show have talked about are the pranks that happen in the seminary.
1: Oh, yes, the pranks, <laughs> the pranks, the pranks. Yes. Could you
0: share with us some pranks that you may have not necessarily been involved in, uh, but maybe have witnessed? Did anybody
1: tell you about what I did at St. Mary's? Is that what you're asking the question? No, no. Oh, okay. All right. Well, this is one of those uh, pranks that can only be pulled every four years. Okay. Because it's one of those things that people would remember. Um one of the one of the seminarians gave me the idea and I went ahead and implemented the idea and this is for April Fools where the way it was set up in the seminary uh for showers with well, the showers were were public they were shared but they were but they had stalls okay they had stalls and they had doors that closed and they locked and the, and the showers had curtains so you had privacy and you had a stall yes and so what I did uh and I used to wake up early in the morning to go running but before I went running. I went in to the, to the showers and I turned them all on. Okay. I used cold water, you know, wasn't going to waste hot water. Turn, turn them all on, close the curtains. And then I had my own towels and t shirts, et cetera. And I threw those over the side oh. of, the, of the stall wall so people can, <laughs> can see that, oh, there's somebody in the shower.
0: They think somebody's in there. Okay. And then I, and
1: then I, closed, I closed the gates, closed the, the, the stall doors, and was able to reach over and lock them. And then I left. I went to go running. Oh, wow. And so then there was a long line of seminarians when I got back who were absolutely <laughs> furious that these guys were taking a shower and they just kept taking a shower and they wouldn't leave, you know? And so they were yelling at them, you know, yelling at nobody. I decided to stand in line with them with, you know, just kind of had towel over my shoulder and just kind of stand in line and just uh, enjoy the drama. And and uh, one of the guys was turning the lights on and off, you know, trying to get in to stop, yeah. getting get to get out of the shower. So. How how
0: long did that last?
1: Uh, it lasted all the way up to, um, let's see, it was probably about an hour, I would say. Some of the guys <laughs> just went to different floors. And it wasn't until- They just gave up. They right? just <laughs> gave up. And so it's about, I want to say it was about uh, 20 minutes before morning prayer, we had to be in the chapel.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and so one of the seminarian was still there waiting. And, uh, and I stood there next to him and I said, and I just went up to one of the stalls and I unlocked the door and he's like, what are you doing? You know, and I opened the curtain. It's like, what is going on? There's nobody there, and then he realized, and he just broke down laughing. He's just he had a great sense of humor, so
0: oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good that he was he was one of those that wouldn't have gotten really. Oh yeah, yeah. There was
1: one guy that did not take
0: it lightly. You know,
1: really. Yeah, yeah. He was he was so angry. I was like, oh well, yeah. Were there
0: any other pranks?
1: Oh, there was other. There were other pranks. I mean, there were. Uh, some guys would put stink bait inside of the air conditioning oh. system for someone's, ha- for one of the hallways. I think it was just, you know, they were all kind of separate. Uh-huh. Yeah. They put stink bait, something that you use to catch catfish. Yeah. Yes. Oh. So they would do that. Um, How long
0: would that sm- last? Uh, I, don't, I
1: don't I don't, I oh. don't even remember because they didn't do it to our hallway, thankfully. <laughs> okay. So it would la- but it would last a good, a good amount of time. Yeah. Um, that, that for some reason, that's the only other prank. I think they might've put saran wrap on the toilets, some, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> there was an idea that someone had, cause I was in charge of the bells and you know, the bells that would ring to let the seminarians know to go into the chapel, et cetera. And it, the, the controls for the bells, there was a box that you would use to time certain tunes, but it also okay. had a keyboard. And, um, this was the same guy that told me to to lock the stalls. He said, that would be a good, a good uh-huh. prank. But what he told me to do was to play uh, the Darth Vader theme from Star Wars <laughs> <laughs> to wake everybody up and- uh,
0: So the Empire March. The Empire yeah. March. <laughs> and
1: so, but I, I, I chickened out, I chickened out. It was gonna be me and another seminarian, we both chickened out. I was like, no, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> Did he end up doing it? No, no, no. It just didn't
0: happen, but anyway. Oh, so if there are any seminarians watching now, they, they might have that idea. Oh, maybe See so. See if somebody's brave enough to absolutely. Hey, but don't tell them that it was my idea. <laughs> so did you did you prank any of the any of the priests? Any of uh, we, the faculty?
1: Yeah, priests were kind of off limits, you okay. know, because they kind of evaluated whether or not we were going to move forward. <laughs> yes. I think the closest that we got to that was we had we had what was called uh, Newman's night. So all, all the the new guys who came in, uh, they can uh, put on a play or or do something for the house, right, for entertainment, uh-huh. and it's, it was kind of a tradition that we would just do a uh, impersonations of the faculty, and so that's <laughs> what we did, and so we had it where, and I and again, it's been a while, but I remember that we had a play where it was, um, where the different faculty. Were members were being impersonated, but within the context of Bible stories. Okay, and so we would reenact Bible stories with the with the faculty playing the different parts of the characters in the Bible story, <laughs> and so Jesus was being played by Father Brendan Cahill. And I was impersonating Father Brendan Cahill. Okay. And who's now a bishop in uh, Victoria. Yes. Uh, so it's kind of funny to think about that. Another one was uh, <laughs> Daniel Flores, who's now a bishop in Brownsville. So we didn't realize that we were uh, uh, impersonating and embarrassing future bishops as we were doing that. So that's, that's <laughs> the closest we got to, to poking at them. Yeah,
0: But no direct
1: pranks. No direct pranks. No direct pranks. At least as far as I know. Actually, there's only one other thing. Uh, I, it was at Holy Trinity Seminary. And um, Monsignor Michael Duca, again, another Bishop in Shreveport, uh, he was the rector at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was this thing that was out there and it was before YouTube, so it, but it was a video that you could download where it was just um, a, vid, a, very, a still image of a house, right? It's like the inside of the house and there's garden plants and it's just a very peaceful scene. Okay. And what you do is you tell the person, just watch this scene watch what happens. You know what I'm talking about? It's classic. You can't even pull it on anybody because everybody knows. Yes. And then there's that, the exorcist girl face that goes out and- The ghost that just- The ghost that shows up and screams. (laughs) And so we did that to uh, Monsignor Michael Duca. He came into the computer room and he says, oh, oh, Monsignor, you got to see this. You got to see this. And so what, what? He's looking at the screen. He goes, oh, no, no, I, I don't like this. What is this? And, <laughs> and then the screen comes out and he jumped back a couple of feet and he and he yelled, oh, wow. And he yelled, you know, and, and he's like, oh, I knew I wouldn't like it. And he walked away. But the other seminarians were, were just, were telling me, why would you do that? You did that to the rector.
0: <laughs> you might've so, had a heart attack or something. Oh no, yeah, you
1: never know, you never know. So yeah, but it was, it, yeah, that's about as close as we got to pranking, at least for me, as close as I got to pranking a, a faculty. One member. of the faculty. Yeah, so yeah.
0: I guess right among all of the guests we that we've had, only one of them actually really pranked the oh, uh, really? faculty member. And I admit yeah. it was fa- no, it was Father oh. Dad. Oh, Father Dad he, did one. He and his whole class. Put a statue of Moses into the restroom of one of the priests. I think it might have been the rector. Oh, really? They set it on his toilet. So, <laughs> oh, that is funny. And that's relatively that's relatively benign, you know. Yes, yeah. So are not causing permanent damage. They could hear it. They were all really quiet, and they could hear it. Uh-huh. and they could hear him scream. So they knew the exact moment that he opened the restroom door funny. and saw a statue looking at him. <laughs> that is too funny. So That's he, creative. So you and Father Dad are the closest ones. Well, oh, him and okay. his entire class. Oh, yeah, his yeah, entire class. Could... Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, because a lot of times it's like uh, the other guys didn't want to get involved. You know. Did, did um, you have some some guys saying, you shouldn't be doing these types of things? Just just that one with the stall. That was it, where I, you know, turned on all the showers and that uh-huh. one guy got upset. You know, and so but that that was one of those situations where there was some friction between us, but, but we're, we're good now. We're good now.
0: <laughs> Did he you eventually know. become a priest?
1: No, he actually left. He left and, um, continued with engineering and he's, uh, from what I understand, he's married now. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, but the last time we saw each other, it was all
1: good. And so, you know, just in you the, the moment.
0: Of, you remind him about that?
1: Uh, No, I didn't. I should have though. Next time I'll do that. I'll say, do you remember when you totally flipped out because you didn't get your morning shower?
0: (laughs) How many stalls was
1: that? That was a lot of water, I suppose. It was three stalls. Yeah, I know. I I was wasting water. I know. Um, But then again, it was
0: cleaning out the pipes. I mean, you uh, you can say that. So five years at St. Mary Seminary. And then where did you spend your pastoral year?
1: Let's see, five years at the seminary. And I spent my pastoral year at St. Pius V. How was and that? And that was with Father Huber Keeley. It was a great experience. And being un- under the tutelage of, of Father uh, Keeley, God rest his soul. Um, and I really enjoyed connecting to the Catholic school that was there and made some mm. really good friends. And I remember really having some great experiences with the parishioners and, and getting to know them. I think one of the most important uh, experiences of a pastoral year, besides of course, exercising, certain pastoral capacities like like teaching and serving at the altar is also getting to know people in the context of being a seminarian. Because a lot of people, uh, they don't really see a huge difference between a seminarian and a priest. They, uh-huh. almost, they almost want to call you father. Like they just, you know, especially if they see you at the altar in a cassock and surplus and yes. you're helping out with things. So, so being able to relate to people in that capacity as a, as a public figure in the context of a parish and getting to know them and relating to them in a way that's pastoral, and also with a kind of uh, sense of being a member of the of the authority of the hierarchy, you know, yeah.
0: So that year you spent there, then you go back into the seminary, right? Right, exactly. And you're reinvigorated, I suppose. Oh, definitely.
1: Yeah. No, pastoral year was very affirming for me for, for my vocation, definitely. And, uh, and getting back, um, you know, you're basically just ready to get it done. You know, third year is like, you're just pushing through. And then fourth uh-huh. year is, fourth year is, it's, it goes by so fast because, uh, you, you know, it's almost like the, the the months leading up to your wedding, you know, yes. a few months. That's, that's what it felt like.
0: So where did you uh, spend your diaconate year? Which parish did you work? That was with? at
1: Saint Jerome mm-hmm. with Monsignor Dan Shiel. So,
0: also a very good experience. So yeah. you spent that one going back and forth every other weekend. Is that how yeah, it goes? That,
1: yes, that one you would uh, every other weekend or uh, two weekends out of the month at least. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, all through all, all through Christmas and the whole Triduum, uh, you know, we would go there to to do different kinds of ministry. Ah, uh, Monsignor Dan, uh, Monsignor Dan Shield was very good in uh, allowing me to do a lot of different ministry, like engage in youth ministry there, and also to celebrate the baptisms and also catechesis, preparing children uh, who were doing RCIA, preparing for for their baptism and uh, their initiation. So yeah.
0: So mm-hmm. that you go back after your your diaconate year. Mm-hmm. When did you find out which parish you'd be assigned to? For the ordination? Yes. Oh, that is an interesting one. I don't know if you've heard this story.
1: Um, what the Cardinal likes to do, from what I have seen, he did it with us. And that is, you don't find out until the rehearsal. Okay. And he gives you the envelope
0: Yes. himself.
1: So this is the night before. Like the night before. That's what I remember. It might have been before the ordination, but I don't, I don't think it was. because I think we would have been too busy getting set up. But I, but I remember right before ordination, he showed up and he had an envelope with, with the, with the letter. And mm-hmm. it was the, it was a, a large brown envelope so that the letter wouldn't be folded, you know? So it was mm. just a clean piece nice. of paper with the letter, with his signature. and I, So you can I, save
0: I, it and frame it and... I
1: think, I think that's, that was the intention. You know, I think that was his intention is to make it very special. This is your first... Assignment and as 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 you're a bishop, this is my first time assigning you uh-huh. to your
0: to your uh, priestly uh, assignment to your first parish. You know? And what was that like? Did did you yeah. and the other seminarians kind of place bets on who would go where? No, we didn't place
1: bets, but we definitely had our had our our guesses. You know, so and it was interesting. We all worked it out. You're probably going to this parish. You're probably uh-huh. going to that parish. That's the rumor. Like there was a rumor that I was going to go to St. Vincent de Paul with Father John Wire to help out over there. Uh-huh. Nobody saw Sacred Heart as one of the possible, because I went to Sacred Heart in Conroe. So uh-huh. no, nobody really saw that coming. Um, so, but I was, I was very pleased because that was with my pastoral year pastor with Father Hubert Killey, who was a okay. Pius Fifth, but now was at Sacred Heart in Conroe. And um, Do you so, think yeah. That was
0: a factor in it? That, that might've
1: been a factor. And and the other thing too is, is that uh, the Cardinal said, uh, Father Kelly has been begging for an associate, begging. So uh-huh. that's where you're going.
0: <laughs> so, and he knew you, so. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. Do you think he asked, did he ask for you specifically?
1: You know, I, I really, I don't remember that, that being a factor. I don't remember that. Yeah. But I do, I do think that that was definitely something that they considered was that the, that he already knew me and that uh-huh. this would be a good assignment because of that. Yeah. Which makes me wonder if I'll get, uh, Christopher Meyer, who's going to be ordained mm-hmm. a couple years from now, is like it'd be good to have him here. You know, who knows, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? You who never knows? know
0: where where yeah. it ends
1: up. Yeah, and, and Saint Bartholomew is a new priest assignment parish, or le- at least it tends to be. So we've had Father Nicholas Ramirez, and now we have Father Ricardo Ariola, and um,
0: yeah, we'll, we'll see. So you find out the night before. Tell us about your ordination because that's your wedding date. That's the wedding date. And that's what it felt like. Well, what was that day like? Um, again, it, it,
1: a lot of it was was kind of a blur, but I do remember certain moments that were very significant. One is that my dad was already ordained a, a permanent deacon. So he was ordained in 2007. I was ordained in 2008 as a priest. So, so he beat you. So he beat me. <laughs> he beat me. That's why he went in so early. And so yeah, but he, but he was the deacon that was selected uh, for obvious reasons uh, to uh-huh. go up and to... Call out the names of the the men to be ordained. Wow! What and an so he honor. called out? So he called out my name. You know, and I stood up and said, you know, you stand up and say present wow. uh, at, at the. I think it's right after right after the gospel. I think is when they do it right before the homily. And um, and I do remember the cardinal saying, uh, Chris, um, even though you're a you're a priest, mm-hmm. um, your dad is still your father. You know, so that was funny, <laughs> and everybody laughed. Everybody laughed. That's so that was
0: a, amazing. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I would have broken down. It was a you beautiful your, moment. It was your a dad beautiful moment. that, or or yeah. being the dad, calling his son's yeah, name being, out, being
1: the father, uh, a father who's calling his son to be a father. Yeah. You
0: know? Oh, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah.
1: And another important moment for me was uh, laying prostrate as the the people were praying, and praying over us, and it, just a sense that the Holy Spirit was pouring over us. And I remember laying on the floor, my head. I, I didn't have my nose in the floor. I had my head you know kind of sitting on my hands like this okay like that looking down so i could see the marble and uh-huh. i could see the reflection of the two stained glass windows that are up in the transepts okay. so on one side is the immaculate heart of mary the other side is the sacred heart of jesus uh-huh. and they both just converged right in front of me where i could see them both nice and um just reflecting on that the beauty of of that moment and and it it was a sense of a deep friendship with jesus that grew even deeper in that time, in that moment. And that was the experience.
0: What goes through your mind when you're there laying prostrate? Oh, all all
1: kinds of things. Um, You know, one is, um, my my knees really hurt, you know. (laughs) I am just kidding. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, I remember a couple of things. Number one is that closeness with Jesus, that really sensing that. Uh And also with the Blessed Virgin Mary. Another thing that went through my mind was how challenging this is gonna be. Am I going to be, am I gonna be able to do it? Am I going to live in a way that's worthy of this vocation? Wow. Am I going to persevere? You know, so there were some moments of, um, I guess of awe, uh, a sense of unworthiness, right? And I'm, you know, with all my sins, I'm still being called to this, to this life. Um, So it's an affirmation that the Lord has called me, a sense of challenge, and also, you know, a little bit of fear a little bit of fear that I had to work through that I continue to work through you
0: know in, in my pre-sleep vocation. What was the most yeah. difficult part of the whole discernment process for you?
1: I I would say the the most difficult part was uh again going going back to fear and I think it's I think it's being afraid of the unknown and also being afraid that I'm that I'm not going to measure up, at least for me, you know. That I, that I'm not going to measure up to the vocation. That I'm not going to be the priest that the people need. Uh-huh. Uh the, the priest that God is calling me to be. Um. So, that was that was a difficult part of of the discernment. Am I am I called to this? Because I look at my defects, my character defects. Yes. You know, and I'm still being called to this. Um. You know. So that that was the I would say the most difficult part to get over. And it, and it turns out that that part of that becomes a gift. I remember reading uh, uh, a passage from, oh, I wanna say it was Marmion, it's been a while, but I remember it saying that when a priest recognizes his defects or weaknesses uh, or perceived defects or weaknesses, it is actually a blessing because it is a moment in which the priest can be open to calling down God's blessings and graces upon himself and find strength not in himself, but in, in the Lord. And that He is the one who provides, and He is the one who, who uh, ne- doesn't necessarily call the qualified, but qualifies the called. So I just um, that, and that's something that's that stayed with me.
0: I think that's. Yeah. I guess that's part of the the whole process that they they put you through, right? Yeah. Like you said, those first couple of years were all just discernment classes. Exactly. So you do a lot of introspection and, and, yes. and all of that. So
1: absolutely, yeah. Because a, a priest that's not self-aware is it can be very dangerous. Um, because they, you know, and we all, we all lack self-awareness. We all, we are all growing. We're all yes. works in progress, right? We, as we get older, we grow in wisdom and knowledge and uh, kind of letting go of things that we thought were very important and, and take hold of things that we didn't think were important, but they will, but we see them as they are now. Um, so yeah. So learning to be self-aware. I, I think one thing I, I do remember the first couple years years in, in the seminary, um, that there was a kind of a tearing down that takes place. It's almost like the military, you know uh-huh. you get you get yelled at and and tear <laughs> you down, and then they build you up. that's that's the that's the idea behind that. Um, or like a so, personal trainer, a personal trainer, <laughs> exactly, you know exactly. or <laughs> you're tearing down the muscle and then you get stronger. Um, but in the case of especially those first two years, uh, because of there is there is that introspection and you have a spiritual director, and that spiritual direction is more intense and intentional. And also, formation director. You know, one of the things that that they look to is is this man is he willing to look at himself as he really is, right? Um, because if he's not, then he's not going to grow. And if he's not mm. going to grow, he's not going he's not going to be a good priest. Because being a priest, I mean, you know, priests aren't aren't they don't come out of the womb ready to go. Yes, they don't hatch out of eggs. You know, uh-huh. it's like a doctor. Nobody comes out of the womb ready to do brain surgery. Yes. Uh, so it's the same thing with, with the priesthood and, uh, and, and I can go on and on about the different areas that, that where that's, that's the truth, you know, in, in terms of the, in terms of the man's mental formation, his intellectual formation, uh, how is he as a human being, you know, does he take care of himself? How does he relate to people? Um, you know, what is, how does he, how does he pray? Is he a man of prayer? You know, in all of those areas every man has to grow in all of those areas in preparation for the priesthood. So anyway, so, so self-awareness, um, awareness of one's own defects, awareness of where one has to work uh, to grow, or awareness of this, this is who you are and this is a cross that you'll carry for the rest of your life. But, and, but that's not gonna stop you from being a priest, but it's gonna be a challenge for you, so
0: yeah. What's the closest that you've come to calling it quits, to discerning mm-hmm. out?
1: Yeah, the closest I came, believe it or not, um, and I, I haven't shared this too much, but I have I have shared it with, with uh, some of my um, some of my parishioners. Is that it was actually the last year um, before I was to be ordained to. Oh, yeah, really, the last year before. That's pretty yeah. late. Yeah, pretty late, and I, um, you know, it, there was a time maybe after the end of my two my first two years where I was kind of I didn't realize how close I was uh-huh. uh, to leaving, but then I had a really good uh, silent retreat and a spirituality program in Omaha at Creighton University. And that helped me kind of move through it. This was out of nowhere. And it's difficult to describe the essence of it, um, but it was connected to not having family. There was a moment of, of grief that came up. It just mm. seemed to come up out of nowhere. I don't know if it's a cycle of grief that, that comes out. Cause I, I I understood the value of celibacy, you know, uh-huh. and I had been living it out. Yes. But that moment there, it just came up and, um yeah and it was it was difficult to work through, but I had my spiritual director helping me out it was it was actually when I was a chaplain candidate uh, okay. working you know with the Air Force um, that summer and um and it might it might have been connected to being away from the seminary I just don't know it's it's still a mystery to me, but one thing was for certain that I persevered in prayer every single day and I remember and this might have been just the way, that, the way God works uh, in terms of how he distributes his grace, how he gives consolation and strength, and how he withdraws it. And so what he did was that he withdrew with consolation, all consolation in my prayer is, is the experience that I had. But I stuck to my holy hour every day, and I also spent even more time in prayer and didn't get any sense of direction from him. Okay. Except that he was calling me to continue praying. Okay. That was it, just to persevere. And then just to power through, just to power through and just continue to listen. I said, and I, and I was very stubborn. I said, I'm going to continue to listen to you and I'm going to trust in you. And, but I'm going to leave. You know, I was certain. I was like, this is, I can't, I can't, I cannot go continue and get ordained as a transitional deacon and then as a priest in this state of mind that I'm in right now. Uh-huh. Um, so, and again, my spiritual director was very good about helping me through it. I had a good friend of mine who's now a priest who was helping me through it too. So I wasn't just on my own on this stuff. But I remember I went through about 40 days experiencing that and coming up with all the reasons why I shouldn't be a priest. Okay. You know, it was like I was convincing myself, yes. but I couldn't make that final decision. Uh-huh. And my spiritual director said, wait until you get back to the seminary. Don't make any decisions right now. Okay. Which is also a good Ignatian principle. Don't make decisions in a time of desolation. Yes. You know? um, so I so went, went through 40 days of that, 40 days. And then the, on the last day, the 41st day, I remember going, we ended our, our chaplain candidacy program at St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver, Colorado. And uh, Father Chad Zielinski, who's also a bishop, yeah, all these bishops, um, he celebrated the mass and it was on the feast of St. Lawrence, which is the patron saint of my home parish. Yes. Right? And he was a martyr. And I remember as a... Father Chad came into the chapel and genuflected in his red vestments. There was just this overwhelming power uh, and just a small voice saying, you know, I wouldn't call you, Christopher, to be a priest if I didn't want you to be happy. You know, I wouldn't call you to be a priest if I didn't want you to be happy. And uh, then it was just over, overflowing consolation. And, uh, wow. and the gospel for that day was about uh, where Jesus says, if uh, if a seed falls to the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. And then that was, you know, that was it. And um, wow. And then I and then I said yes, yes, I will do this. I will do this.
0: And then from that so, point on, you were all in. And then I was all in. Ever since then, did that That's come? Where, did that come in into your mind while you were there, there on the floor, laying prostrate?
1: Um, I don't remember it coming into my mind when I was there prostrate. I don't remember uh-huh. exactly. Um, but it's something that 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 I cherish in, in my in my memory. I I think about it um, every now and then, and it's also the reason why my vocation is so rock solid. It, it was one of those experiences. I think Saint Ignatius of Loyola talks about it, where the consolation is so strong that one cannot, one does not even have the ability to doubt it, mm-hmm. even if they tried. So it was one of those experiences. Um, so I, I think that was the gift. I think that was the gift that he was giving me. Cause I was, what I was asking for, I was asking for a fiat. I said, I need, I need a fiat. I need the grace uh-huh. to be like the Virgin Mary to say, let it be done unto me according to your word. That's yes. really what I want from you, Lord, if you can be so generous to give that to me. And um, yeah, and so, so he gave it.
0: So you find out your assignment yeah. the night before, you're ordained, now I assume your whole family's there. Oh yeah,
1: yeah, I even, I had my grandparents, I had aunts and uncles, That's I had awesome. some
0: cousins. Yeah, yeah, so it was beautiful. Now, you have some time off first before you have to report to your assigned parish. What, what'd you do at mm-hmm. that point?
1: Yeah, there was a, we had about a month uh, at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was kind of a standard thing to kind of lollygag around for a month, you know? But the, but the reason, I think a lot of the reasons is is because priests will celebrate masses yes. of Thanksgiving at different parishes. Um, so yeah, so I celebrated my first mass at St. Lawrence. Uh I, I remember it was my first Mass, so I totally blanked out right before the <laughs> right before the, the sign of the cross. I think and I had some some good priests uh who were there, like Father Peter was there uh-huh. um from AM Kingsville, and he looked at me and he says, Relax, Chris. Relax. <laughs> I think you could tell. So anyway, but that was a beautiful, uh, b- beautiful mass. Once I made the sign of the cross, everything just flowed from there. Okay, everything so it was, it was
0: just getting started.
1: It was just getting started. <laughs> just flow from there. Um, and then we, uh, then I celebrated a mass of Thanksgiving at uh, St. Jerome, uh-huh. and um, I can't remember the other. There was another place. Um, oh, St. Pius the Fifth, of course. St. Pius the Fifth. Celebrated mass there, and. You know, and and I, I just, yeah, it's, it's been so long. So I don't remember everything else, but that was the main thing that I remember Did doing. Did you do
0: any weddings for friends or baptisms? Yeah, or? not too long after that. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I, and I still do weddings, weddings for some friends. Yeah, yeah. And can celebrate at some, so yeah.
0: What's it like doing those, the sacraments the
1: first time? Is it overwhelming? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember feeling overwhelmed or really kind of um, not overwhelming. I never felt overwhelmed celebrating any of the sacraments except uh-huh. that one time, that first mass. Um, but definitely wanting to make sure that I'm doing things right, mm. and so you know, studying the right beforehand and making sure I'm taking the next steps. And um, but I've, I had always really felt relaxed. Really, uh, you know, after that first mass, I really felt relaxed about doing the rest of the sacraments. Except, I should say, another exception would be the vigil, because my in my first mm. assignment, uh, Father uh, Hubert Kelly was diagnosed with cancer about six months into my assignment. okay, And he had to go to chemotherapy. And so his health had declined so much that he couldn't do the Easter vigil.
0: Oh, and that's usually the responsibility of the- Of the pastor. pastor. Yeah, and
1: so my first year, I celebrated the entire Easter vigil. Wow. I'll never forget it, and it was four hours. Wow. Part of the reason was because I was, you know, kind of checking along the way, make sure I'm doing the the next steps. And so I'm kind of sitting there, okay, all right. So this is the part where he comes up for the confirmation, okay. You know, so
0: yeah. And you you this is your first time doing I mean time. you've seen it as a parishioner. As a parishioner, and right.
1: And you know, helped out pastoral yeah. year and, yes. and that
0: was you know, so I did
1: have that and my deacon year. But um but yeah, that no but
0: actually being a priest up there
1: being the one in charge, making sure it all <laughs> does like people do what they're supposed to do and
0: yeah. That and is so, so. funny because this past um holy week I was listening to um a podcast and one of the priests called in he was he was a parochial vicar and he said oh this is an easy time for you know parochial vicars cuz everything falls on the pastor yeah. during holy week right cuz it's the pastor who has to do all of those masses
1: absolutely yeah but for yeah.
0: you it's your first year
1: my first year and
0: you get thrown into the deep end yeah absolutely yeah yeah it was
1: I'll just never forget it. And I remember him telling me about, you know, a few days before that it might happen. Uh I didn't really believe it. So I didn't prepare at all. So it was like that (laughs) evening is when he said, you know, I was like, oh my gosh. And then I, and then I had to do it the second year as well. Um, Yeah. I can't remember. It was, Let's see. I was transferred out May fourteenth. Um, yeah, Father Kelly had actually passed away not too long before the oh. second Easter vigil that I celebrated. Oh, yeah. And then I was transferred out May fourteenth, so not too
0: long after. Okay. And then where yeah. were you transferred to then?
1: Uh, St. Thomas More. And mm-hmm. how
0: long did you spend there? I was only there for a year.
1: Oh, that was quick. Yeah, very, very quick assignment. So I went to Resurrection after that, in, in Houston. That's when that okay. was my first pastor assignment. Why? Why so yeah. quickly? Just a year. Um, they were. They were desperate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, they're desperate for pastors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they need needed somebody at resurrection. And uh, so they, they uh, asked me to go over there. Yeah.
0: So speaking um, of, you know, the pastors and parochial vicars, how much mm-hmm. different was it, you know, getting that first pastoral yeah. assignment?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I kind of experienced it already at Sacred Heart. Because, because as a <laughs> the, the pastor got, you know, more and more sick, I started oh, taking yeah. over more of the pastor duties, pastor-like duties. Okay. But the difference was I could go back to him. So I would go back to him, Uh, you know, he would be in his living room sitting in his recliner and I would say, uh, so this is what's happening right now. How mm-hmm. do you want me to handle it? And then he would tell me and yes. I would go and implement it. At resurrection, I didn't have any of that. Yes, so, it's all on you. It's all on me. So just basically feeling like, um. I don't know. I, maybe sometimes I, I think about it like a parent, like parents taking home their newborn baby, and they have this stranger in their car, and they <laughs> there's no instruction it. manual. Baby you're, needs you're, to be fed. <laughs> baby needs to you know. And it's like, how do you how do you do it as a parent? So it, it was kind of like that. Uh-huh. It's like the past the the parish depends on you as pastor. And if you as pastor don't make things happen, things don't happen. Uh-huh. I mean, it's not like the proco vicar who looks to his pastor and, and yes. you know he knows that things are going to be okay. And and proco vicar goes on vacation; they go on vacation. You know, a pastor never really mentally he never goes on vacation. I wow. think I mean I, I step away, but I always have to keep one eye on, on on the parish just to make sure. Got to have my cell phone you know ready to go. Um, you know, or some form of communication, even if I'm out, out of the country for a pilgrimage, it's like the email's there, you know? Uh-huh. So yeah, but- um, Make this and, decision, you know,
0: people are asking you to, to oh, make a call yeah. on something, okay.
1: Yeah, there's that. And also the the level and the complexity of the problems are far, far greater, mm. um, you know, when you're having to deal with legal issues and person, oh, wow. personnel, I would say personnel issues and legal issues uh-huh. are are the biggest. It's the fires that come up that make the big difference. Yeah.
0: Because, yeah, aside from being the leader of the church, uh, the, the parish, you're yeah. also like the CEO at the same time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah.
1: Wow. The finances, uh, the, the legality, not you know, canon law, as well as civil law and, uh, yeah, and HR. So Do they have classes HR.
0: for that in the seminary to they, prepare you for that?
1: When I was there, we had one class for that. We, okay. had, one, we had one class for more of the administrative stuff. Okay. We had, we had uh, three canon law classes. So, which is probably, which is definitely more important than knowing civil law. Uh-huh. Canon law is more important because that, that impacts people's souls, right? Yes. Um, but there was one class that we did take. It was with uh, Bishop Rosado, God rest his soul. And we just, they just had different people come in from the chancery uh, to talk to us about some critical things to, to know and to remember. And I think they were basically teaching us things that we needed to know to, to at least keep us from running the parish into the iceberg. You know, so it was like, one was like the HR person saying, okay, so this is how you handle, this is uh-huh. how you supervise. Uh-huh. And also don't fire anybody without calling the chancery first. Okay. <laughs> and that stuck in my head. Don't fire anybody until you talk to HR. So, uh, but, but I remember that. Yeah.
0: Now you're, you're taking the reins at that church. How long were you there? That uh, first, at resurrection? At that first, yes. Yeah. Five years. Five years. Mm-hmm. And then wh- um, how was that? what was it like being there for five years? It was,
1: and... it was a, an adventure. It was, uh, it was beautiful and it was, uh, sometimes terrifying. It was uplifting and sometimes burdensome. I mean, it was a whole gamut of things. Um, I, I remember I had a Catholic school, so that was so uplifting to go and visit the mm, kids. Yes. That, that for me was a, was a break, you know, just go visit the kids, you know, and, and talk to them and, um do different things for them celebrate mass for them so i just remember they, that being a big highlight for the parish and i also really enjoyed getting to know getting to know the the people and it was also a, it was a different culture for me um you know because my parent at least for parish culture not not my heritage because i'm part mexican okay. so i would go i was born in laredo you know and i would get to know the the folks in laredo and and get, getting kind of familiar with that environment so In inner city Houston, in that area, it was basically like going to Laredo. Uh So that was very familiar. But in a parish environment, it's different because I've never been part of a parish that's inner city that is deeply Hispanic, where you it's ninety nine percent Hispanic, almost all Mexican, which kind of makes things easier actually. Because here at St. Bart's, we have Hispanic, but only half are Mexican. You know, so it's complex.
0: Okay, but
1: there, you know, getting to know them, that there is a kind of a kind of a a simplicity and, and a devotion to family. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember going to people's homes and, and blessing their homes and having meals with them and uh, just really enjoying that aspect of being a pastor. You know, it actually says in canon law that a pastor must visit families. Mm-hmm. It's like so you're telling me to go and 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 have meals with people. Yeah, I can do that. You know, <laughs> and so and and but there's a strain, there's a tension there as a pastor, and, and I was learning that 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 tension between the administration and being present, most importantly in the sacraments, and then getting to know the people. So that that was difficult for me to strike that balance because administration can literally swallow up everything. It can yes. swallow up everything because that tends to be uh, that that tends to I, I tend to feel that as being more urgent mm-hmm. than the other things, you know, you know. So um, so you know, in, in a lot in the other part of it, as my first assignment was just learning and having to learn fast. And making mistakes that I wouldn't make now, um, but would be typical mistakes of a, of a new pastor, and you know, in really relying on my mentor, who at the time was um, he was Monsignor Scheltz. Uh, now he's auxiliary bishop, uh-huh. and he was very helpful to those first uh, those first years at uh, at Resurrection, and he helped calm me down because. Again, another thing is, it's kind of like with parents, with a new uh-huh. child, again, they're very careful with everything. Oh, no, the baby fell down. Did he you break panic, a bone? Yes. Yeah, you panic. <laughs> and now the baby falls and, you know, oh, if he's not crying. That's okay. You know, and, and so, you know, making, making mistakes and those mistakes seeming much bigger than they actually are. Or certain crises that come up, and it's like, no, no, no. By now, here, like here at Saint Bartholomew, if, if the similar crisis comes up, it's like, okay, I've, I've been through this before. We know what to do. Been there, done yeah, that. I, been there, done that. Know how to so, handle it. No, I know how to handle it exactly. So, yeah, there's a lot that I can say about my time at Resurrection, but it was just a, a wonderful time of of growth and uh, uh, gaining experience, um, getting to know the people, growing, growing spiritually, growing in the in the faith, because. I had to continue to kneel before Jesus and beg for his help for discernment on what to do next. And, uh, you know, kind of getting used to that that rhythm of experiencing things that can be stressful, very stressful and feeling like it's beyond my control. And a lot of things are beyond the control of a pastor. And, uh, but a lot of people don't know that. So they blame the pastor. <laughs> they don't know how much we don't have control over. Um, you know, and also learning how to do do right by the people, even if they don't agree. You know, that's the other thing too. That was a big thing to learn. Um, everybody loves a proko baker because he, he's not the decision maker, right? <laughs> uh, the pastor can be the bad guy sometimes. So um, yeah, there, there's there's so many things I, I learned at resurrection, but it, that was that's something that, that was very important, was learning a lot about how to be a good pastor and also growing in prayer, growing deeper in that relationship with Jesus.
0: Now you said you're part Mexican. Are Mm -hmm. you
1: fluent in Spanish? I am. I am fluent, but not because I'm part Mexican, but because the seminary sent me to study. Okay. So you
0: didn't grow up speaking Spanish.
1: No, no, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I grew up listening to it. So my grandmother spoke a lot of Spanish and and I didn't understand a thing that that she said. Talking Um, about the
0: kids in Spanish and you can't understand. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Probably. And so, yeah, yeah. No, but I, but I learned later on my, uh, after my it was actually after my first year of seminary, they sent me to Mexico and then they sent me again two years later. So, yeah.
0: So that's cool. Mm-hmm. So now you can talk with some of your mm-hmm. your relatives oh, in yeah. Spanish. Did it surprise yeah. them how good you, you had become?
1: Yeah, it did. It did. Especially when I when I first got back, my dad picked me up from the airport uh-huh. that first year and I was talking to him in Spanish because he knows Spanish. In fact, that's his first language. And uh he's oh yeah, that that's pretty good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah. Big surprise.
1: Yes. Big surprise. And my grandparents were, my grandmother was impressed. So she was, yeah, she was thrilled.
0: I have a, a very similar experience because I'd learned to speak Filipino later mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And w- when I'd gotten to the point where I could actually, my my the way I speak with my dad is different than it was when mm-hmm. I was much younger. We only spoke in English. Mm. But when I finally learned, we only spoke we only speak now in Filipino. It's it's, oh, it's wow. funny. Yeah. It's, yeah. 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 <laughs> because that's mean, his first language. It's the
1: first language. It's comfortable, you know, there's a connection there with with heritage. I, I think it makes a big difference to I, I think anybody I think it would be good for for anybody to learn the language of their heritage. Uh, for me, it would be hard because I'm Mexican, Lebanese, and Dutch, Cherokee, and <laughs> and British. And uh, that's just not possible. <laughs> just learn them all. I'm just going to learn them all. You know, <laughs> what do Cherokees speak? I don't know. We'll figure it out.
0: <laughs> now, you, you said earlier about um, being a parochial vicar, how mm-hmm. much easier it is. Yeah. I, I heard a joke during one of your podcasts that you directed towards uh, uh, Father Rick. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure, is this an inside joke or? Running joke about him being a parochial vicar for the rest of his life or permanently. Oh yeah, yeah. The running the running joke uh,
1: is that well, it's kind of it's it's all it's serious and also a joke. So in all seriousness, uh, with with men that are competent priests that are competent Mm -hmm. like Father Ricardo, they're going to be made priests after three years, four years max. Uh huh. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, like for me, I I was made a pastor too quickly. Um, You know, now that I think about it, uh, it was I was only a priest for three years. But I thought, you know, I kind of held my own at Sacred Heart. I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And um, the more experience I, I gain as a pastor, the more I realize it probably would have been good to have been a parochial vicar for 10 years, uh, uh-huh. which, which is way, the way it used to be. Okay. But, they're, but they're, they're in desperate need of pastors, right? So probably three, four years. We, we would be, I would be thankful if we get him for another year. So he's been here for two years. So I, I joke around though. So when I see the Cardinal come around for confirmation masses uh-huh. and uh, you know I'm, I'm getting vested, he's getting vested and, and I wait for Father Ricardo to come into the act to the vesting room uh-huh. so that I can say this in front of him. And I would say, you know, Cardinal, I really don't think Father Ricardo is ready to be a pastor. <laughs> he has a lot of growth. He has a lot of issues. I think you should leave him here for at least seven more years.
0: <laughs> Cause it must be tough if you have a good parochial vicar, yeah. someone you can lean on. Right. Someone that helps you out a lot. And then you're like, Ah, oh, I'm gonna lose this guy. Yeah.
1: You're gonna lose him. And and honestly, you don't know if the next guy's gonna be able to um, you know, serve well. I mean, not every priest is equal in their mm-hmm. abilities. So you know, or and, at least have
0: know, the, the same relationship or the, or same. the
1: same relationship. The relationships aren't, are never the same. Uh, and so you kind of lose him and then you lose that relationship, you not lose the relationship, but you, you know, you don't have that, that person around anymore. I mean, I had father Nicholas with me, uh, and he was just a phenomenal pro vicar, and it was, it was tough to lose him. But again, he was, uh, he was very competent, a lot of gifts, and now he's pastor. Where's and he now? He's at St. Francis Xavier Cabrini.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, that time, the five years at Sacred Heart, is that when they you they mean, moved you?
1: You mean three years? It's, I was Sacred Heart for two years. Okay. I'm sorry. And then St. Thomas More for one year, and then Resurrection for five. Years. Oh, Resurrection. Excuse me. Yeah, resurrection yeah, yeah.
0: for five years. Yeah. Then you came here to St. Bart. Is that yes. what happened?
1: Yes. After five years, I was uh, came came here. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And yeah. then what decision was made to move you here rather than keep you there?
1: Um. What from what I understand, the personnel board, which is a group of priests that comes together and they they offer a consultation to the cardinal. Okay. Um, uh they, they needed somebody here. And what they told me, the conversation went like this. One priest said, You know who could who might be good at St. Bartholomew, Father Christopher? And the cardinal nodded his head and said, Yeah, he would like it there.
0: Okay, let's do that. <laughs>
1: Just like that. <laughs> That's what I heard. That's what I was told how the conversation went. And, Isn't and, that crazy how um, yeah. you,
0: you, the whole course of your life as a priest yeah. is just off of a conversation? Off a
1: conversation that might have taken 45 seconds, you know? Just, so, just the cardinal yeah. saying, yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. good. All and, right, and, and what if, And what if he says no? And he'll say, well, I'll ask again. <laughs> <laughs> and so,
0: yeah, yeah. Wow. And how many years again have you been here? Uh, it'll be five years in August. Five years now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, tell us about the your your
1: podcast. Oh yeah, with conversing clergy. Yes, yeah. So conversing clergy started, believe it or not, it started back in two thousand eight, um, and it was with Father. It was with me, Father Michael Earthman, and also Father Jeff Reed, um, who, who's no longer a priest, but he's now ha- happily married in the church. Um, we said, we, what happened was we were sitting down at, at, a, at, a, at some place uh, just having a couple glasses of scotch. And, and we had these conversations that, I don't know, it was, it was just fascinating that, that when people would hear us have these different conversations, they would be so interested in listening in and asking more, you know? Um, and so we said, you know, what if we did like a podcast? And so in that time, it was literally a, an iPod and yes. you know you would cast it through the iPod, right? So we went to the, uh, to the chancery where they have a radio downstairs, a radio station downstairs and recorded uh, our conversation. And I think we were talking about immigration because that was coming up for some reason. And I don't remember all the details. Unfortunately, things didn't, didn't go right in terms of the electronics or something didn't go right. So the sound was completely off and oh. so we couldn't use it. Um, and then that was it. That was it for a while. So then I created a blog called Conversing Clergy. Okay. And then I invited, uh, again, um, some of the priests to contribute to, to writing a blog, but we're so busy. So they didn't, they didn't bother doing it. So I was just blogging. So I have like 170, um, uh, blog entries on that one, just different reflections. Okay. Um, on different topics. And, um, so there was that. And then I created a Facebook page and, uh, and then a fan page. And so I have about 4,000 followers on that. And um, just people just, you know, over time they just join in. And so I would post the, the blog entry or the link on Facebook. So, and that was conversing clergy. And, and I would invite people to make comments. And there was one time I did get a, a great conversation going. It was about Stephen Hawking, when he said that there is no need for, for, there, to be, for there to be a God. Right. Okay. And so I said, my t- the title was Stephen Hawking said there's no need for, for God. I agree. And that was clickbait for sure. <laughs> and of course, the argument was the God that he's talking about I, that we don't believe in. Okay. The God that he's talking, which is the atheist God. The atheist God, we don't believe in the atheist God. We uh-huh. believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, right? Okay. We're God, they're talking about God of the gaps who explains natural phenomena. Uh-huh. So anyway, so there was one guy who was just getting into it. And it was great, it was a great conversation. So anyway, so that was Conversing Clergy, the blog. Uh-huh. And then what happened was when I, when I got to uh, St. Bartholomew, got here to St. Bartholomew, um, I just started doing videos. I don't know what inspired me to do it, but I just, I have my phone. Put it in front of my face and I just started talking about, uh-huh. you know, different things. And then it evolved, evolved into what we call, and at that time I didn't call that conversing clergy. But what happened was I decided it would be great if we can just get the brother priests together. And we did these pre-recorded conversing clergies. Yes. With multiple cameras. We had multiple cameras, et cetera, et cetera. So again, talking about different topics um, and people uh, tend, to, they, they seem to really love them and they would watch them. And then we did another uh, series called Priests and we've done three of those and that's a spoof off of cops. And so it would show us driving around and we would talk to each other about different things and that was just complete nonsensical banter, you know, and maybe we would talk about some serious things about what we're doing, you know, so there was that. That and, would be um, cool.
0: Yeah, priests like just the camera yeah. following a couple of priests. That's around. that's
1: exactly what we did. Yeah, and um, and so that that was a lot of fun. That actually, uh, the the third priest episode, um, I think we hit almost two thousand views on that one. For the third one, uh, that was with Christopher Meyer and Father Ricardo, and we were on our way to a staff retreat over at Air Lady of Walsingham. So, um, you know, and for us, for our channel, you know, having almost two thousand views is is pretty big. Uh huh. Um, so, so we did that, and now, and then we said, and then at, at some point, and, and as I as I said earlier, we just did that random live feed uh, with Facebook, and then we said this was really helpful. People were making comments, they were reaching out. Yes, and so then we decided to to develop it more, and then, that, then I had that table with the laptop and maybe some bet. We got a couple of better mics, and then when when COVID hit. It was interesting because at that time, right before COVID hit, I already had so much set up already. Uh-huh. I learned, I watched YouTube videos about how to use the broadcasting software, yes, how to use Adobe Premiere Pro, how to, um, you know, how to arrange a camera. What kind of what kind of camera would be good for it? Uh-huh. Um, you know, all these different things on, on how to do it and, and buying the equipment. I even sound treated the room, et cetera, and all of this was being done just in time for COVID to hit. And at that, it was just what we needed. It's just wow. what the parishioners needed.
0: You were prepared
1: for it. We were prepared for it. Because because a lot of that stuff, because all the stores were closed, we wouldn't have had access to any of that yes. equipment. Because that yes. stuff just wasn't being sold. But we had it. We had the lights. We had we had everything in place.
0: Yeah, because a lot yeah. of the stuff is on back order until
1: now. Exactly it's right. It's still on back order. A lot of stuff is on back order. So um, So the the charism of conversing clergy that we because at at first we were kind of just doing it just having conversations and they were thinking you know we we probably should have some substance when we have our conversations because at first it was just us talking and people uh-huh. what questions do you have okay let's talk about that Um, so we said we have to have something to talk about you know it's not enough to banter and um, and then we we came to the came to the conclusion and and I had created kind of a vision statement for what conversing clergy is about. And so what I say is that conversing clergy is about conversations between the clergy and the laity, so that we engage in conversation with Jesus Himself, so that our, our hearts will burn within us, uh, just like the disciples did on their way to Emmaus. So that's kind of the charism of it. And another way to describe it is imagine that we are at your house, or that you're over here at the rectory. What kind of conversations with you would you like mm. to have with us? Yes, you know. Yes. So that's that's the movement. That's the spirit of of conversing clergy. And it's, and I let the, the people know you're part of the conversation. So we're going to read your, your chats. We're going to, we're going to uh, look yes. at your questions. Now we can't do every single one now. We used to be able to do that, but now we get too many.
0: They move so quickly.
1: And they move quickly. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't keep up, you know? Um, and I, I just, I, I don't see that out there. I see a lot of the the stuff that, that priests do is uh, mostly pre recorded. Uh-huh. And that's not a criticism, by the way. I guess what I'm saying is we're I think we're filling a, a niche mm-hmm. first and foremost for our parish. So we are directed in a partnership with our parish. Um, but um, but also if if people want to engage in that in that conversation because i I think that there's a couple of things that we're doing that are very special. Number one is that we we do have priests coming together, just having conversation about whatever the topic may be. Yes, we bring in guests. Sometimes laity, like last night or a couple of nights ago, we had our youth coordinator come in and it was like a youth night. Uh-huh. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so there's one that's, the, that's one thing. And the other thing is that we are providing uh, um, a way for people to interact with us live. Yes, which carries with it some risk. You know, we have to be careful about yes. what people say on on the live stream. Oh yes, and that's why some priests are hesitant about coming on because they are concerned about that. But we have moderators, and yes. and I think the risk is worth it. Um, and really, any any person, anytime you have anything live, or if you have a conference where there's 300 people, yeah. oh, any, anybody yeah. can say something crazy. So
0: that's how a yeah, town see hall it. meeting or something, somebody can town walk in meeting. and just yell something. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, so that that's always a risk yeah. anyway. Um. So, so anyway, that's, uh, that's the, the charism and, and, you know, another aspect of it is for us to have fun. You know, it's really meant to be fun. It's meant to be light. Uh, We don't get too heavy on things. Uh Um, If we do have a heavy topic, I'll probably move it to another evening where we'll say, okay, this is going to be more of a lecture style. Yes. But that Wednesday night, it's to have fun, have conversation, learn a few things. It's very relaxed. It's meant to be very relaxed and literally, uh, you know, we don't prepare a whole lot for those for those evenings in order to keep it relaxed. Cause we were doing something where each one was doing a presentation. Yeah. And I said, no, it, it's really meant to be conversational because again, how often do people get to see priests interact in a conversational style? Yes. Where we're we're literally talking to each other as we would at the rectory dinner table, pretty much. Yeah, In you fact, don't
0: know where the conversation's going to lead. Know, yeah, And exactly. we also disagree sometimes,
1: you know, <laughs> or we'll say, I, I don't agree with you, Father Ricardo, or Father Ricardo, say, I don't agree with you, or, you know, oh, let's look it up, you know, and I'll end up being wrong, usually. Um, and I was like, okay, well, we learned something new. And and I think people really appreciate that. And of course, we have our meme time. So, people love yes, meme time. meme time. We show our Catholic memes and, and uh, you know... And and the fun one about that, you never know how people are going to react, and and but we, we try to stay away from the controversial stuff. <laughs> um, but sometimes people are like, no, I don't like that one. You know, it's like, but but people really love that part of it. One
0: one great thing about your podcast is you said earlier, you know, as a priest, you're supposed to go into somebody's home.
1: Exactly right,
0: and that's exactly what you're doing. You're doing it dozens of people at a time, exactly entering their homes through the podcast, conversing with them.
1: That's exactly it. Yeah, it was a que- it was a concern. Part of it was a concern about uh, availability. You know, uh, we can't get out to all the parishioners' homes, yeah. and some parishioners can't. Um, you know, bring people in anyway. You know, yes. some are um, they have problems with handicap, uh, you know, sickness, whatever it might be. And of course, during the coronavirus, definitely, um, you know, we just couldn't be in contact with each other. Now you've and been so, here,
0: you said for five years mm-hmm. at Saint Bart. Yeah, looking ahead. Do you think they're gonna move you again soon? Do you think you're gonna- I hope
1: not. I mean, you just never know. Um, But I I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Again, uh, with bigger parishes like this, they tend to keep the pastors in bigger parishes for a longer period of time. You know, St. Bartholomew has benefited from pastors who have been here for 12 years at a time. So Father Mm -hmm. John Carr was here for 12 years. Father Mayon was here for, I mean, Father John Carr was here for 12 years, Father Mayon for 12 years. Um, I think, I think Father Charles Domek was here for 12, but a lot of long pastorates and, um, and that tends to be the, the, uh, the way that, that the bishops tend to move uh,
0: priests around. So I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping 12 years, you know, I really am. If, and when they do move you, what do you want people, your parishioners to remember about you and your time Hmm. as the pastor?
1: Oh, and that's, that's an interesting question. I'd have to, I'd have to think about that. Um, I just, I hope the The main thing is that is that I love them, that I gave my heart to them. I hope that they can remember that if if nothing else, at least that that I love them and that and that I help them to know about Jesus's love for them.
0: Thank you so much yeah. for coming in on the show and and spending your time and talking about, you know, your journey. And your podcast, and we wish you the best of luck with it.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this too. Uh, so having a great conversation with you and, it, oh. and you asked you asked a lot of great questions and I, and I really enjoyed it and I felt really relaxed too. So thank you so much. That's great to know.